The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone. Happy Hidden Hour. Can everyone hear me okay? It looks like it. Uh, Dr. John and I are glad to be here. In fact, so glad I should probably turn off my phone here. There we go. Uh, I'm going to have some moderators help me uh, through my phone, so I'll put it right there on silent. Thank you, everyone, for being here. For those new to our channel, we just keep receiving new uh, subscribers every week. Thank you so much for subscribing and hitting that like button. We are a journalist and a forensic psychologist. I was a journalist, uh, TV reporter for 10 years. John is a forensic and clinical psychologist and has been uh, for decades. So uh, <laughs> let's, <laughs> and then on top That makes of me it, sound really old. <laughs> Well, on top of it, the most important part of this is that we are husband and wife. So <laughs> when you hear me call him babe, it's not that I'm being uh, inappropriate or, or maybe I am. I don't know. I'll try hard not to. <laughs> uh, today, uh, we're going to tackle a pretty bold question. And by where, I mean Dr. John today. We're essentially going to ask, is there a profile of evil? Uh, I don't know uh, myself, many forensic psychologists that would even dare go here, but we're going to tackle that. So stay with <laughs> us. We're continuing to discuss the Moscow homicides in Moscow, Idaho, a college town, University of Idaho, uh, Northwest Idaho actually is where it is. Uh, four bright young students taken far too soon. We still don't know who did it. We're still uh, all wondering and we're going to continue discussing the possibilities of that crime. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. With that being said, we said last time uh, to leave your questions in comments that we would ask your questions for the following week. And that has worked really well for us. So thank you. Once again, we read everything. We can't always respond. It's just the two of us, but we read them all and we picked a few of your questions to read tonight. So Dr. John, Dr. Babe, do you want to start with those questions now before we get to the big question? Is there a profile for evil? <laughs> um, sure. Let's, let's start with some of the questions. Note that the questions are mainly about psychopaths or psychopathy. In terms of psychological research, just to tie this in, there's, there's been more and more research these days, which, which looks at that question of whether psychopathy is something close to approaching evil in social science. So it's a huge topic. We'll, we'll scratch the surface, but we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to develop some answers to that. Just as a quick intro, there's a fairly recent book, Psychopathy and Human Evil, which, which obviously tries to answer some of the questions we're going to be talking about tonight. It's an edited edition by Ikovitz and Howell. And I'm not completely out in left field by addressing this issue. It's, it, is, well, it, is, it is a current debate and there is psychological research on this question of evil. So we'll, 
we'll do our best. And you gave a little bit of a teaser there too. For those that are on our Patreon, we already put out one teaser. Call this what John just did, lifting up that book, discussing <laughs> that, a follow-up. Uh, we have an announcement coming soon that we'll be sharing. So call that the second clue to what it is. And no, it will not be uh, baseball cards or NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> the first question we have comes from Mickey Duff. Mickey Duff, thank you for your great question on last uh, Hidden Hour. She says, uh, or he, I'm not quite sure, first time watcher. My question is, would someone who committed this crime have absolutely no history of violence in their past? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think it's possible. I think that there are some psychopaths who are able to channel some of their psychopathic qualities in a positive direction. So there's actually a group of psychopaths called subclinical psychopaths. And a lot of these types of people end up in the corporate world. So, uh, you know, these are the, the CEOs that embezzle or take all the stock or screw their shareholders or whatever and have no guilt about it whatsoever. Usually they're chasing money rather than violence, but they don't typically have histories of violence. And there's actually a, a more recent theory of psychopathy, which breaks psychopathy down into three areas. The first one is meanness. The second one is disinhibition. And the third one is fearlessness. So if you look at those three areas, fearlessness is a, could be a very productive quality. So many psychopaths who or it's sometimes called boldness, by the way. So fearlessness, boldness. Boldness can serve someone well in the corporate world. And so you see psychopaths without a history of violence that are what we call productive psychopaths, and they're quite successful, and they exist. So are there psychopaths out there? Could this psychopath, potentially, if it is a psychopath, could this person potentially have not had a history of violence? Yes, it's certainly possible. I would expect that there would definitely be some clues. You know, it's it's also possible that psychopaths fly under the radar when they're younger or they're not caught, that they engage in some violence outside of normal channels. Like maybe they don't have fights at school. They have fights after school and they're not caught. So it's certainly possible to have a history of violence that goes undetected. My guess is that for somebody doing something like this, there's probably some clues somewhere and there might be some violence, but answering the question more broadly, yes, there are psychopaths that, that don't necessarily have histories of violence. Let's hope that they're not your bosses. Here, here. Here's for <laughs> hoping. Who's our boss? Are you my boss? Am I your boss? How does it work when we're coworkers? <laughs> Nobody's the boss of us yet. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day. Uh, maybe we need to hire a boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hopefully not a psychopath. <clears throat> yeah. That'll, that We'll put out an ad. We need a boss. No psychopaths. Right. Because I think an ad that reads psychopath free boss is going to work really well. <laughs> That's not going to attract a psychopath. Right. Our second question actually comes from Patreon. Uh, thank you, Sylvia, for being a Patreon member and asking this great question on Patreon. Two questions, actually. I'll, I'll ask them both, John, and you can start with the first or the second, whatever you want. Okay. Uh, Sylvia asks, when a psychopath is named a suspect of a crime and he knows he or she is a suspect, how does he react? That's the first question. 
The second question is, what behavior would you expect from a psychopath who knows that law enforcement or even the wider community is seriously looking into the crime or them? Of course, there's no one way to answer these questions. I should point that out. But how would I expect a psychopath to react, you know, maybe with some pride or maybe indifference? You know, one thing about psychopaths is they do really poorly in terms of processing emotion. In fact, there's there's a large belief that psychopaths have emotional processing deficits and it's it's connected potentially to the amygdala in the brain. So many of them have deficits in the amygdala. So how would they react? Probably not very emotionally, probably with indifference or maybe even a little bit of pride, I think. So psychopaths also are, are very narcissistic. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised to see a psychopath react with some degree of pride. Wow. Wow. Uh, would they ever taunt or anything like that, by the way? That's a, that's a, that's one of your wife's questions. Sorry. I threw that at you. Yeah. <laughs> I think some would. Yes. I think some would, I think they'd probably be subtle about it, but you know, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but if I think of somebody like Israel keys and, and keys is an interesting person because in many ways he's like the personification of a psychopath, but then he's, he was in significant relationships where his partner spoke highly of him or, or well of him and said he wasn't violent. And he has a daughter. He had a daughter, has a daughter that he seemed to love very deeply. So, you know, it's, it's an enigma. I think with a lot of, and, and by the way, that's sort of the Dexter problem <laughs> for those Dexter, Dexter fans out there. The big question, one of the big questions in the Dexter series in the last couple of seasons was, is Dexter capable of love? Which is the same thing as asking, is a psychopath capable of love? And most, most experts would say, no, they're not. However, you know, somebody like Keyes, I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's an open question. It's an interesting question. It's a very interesting question, which is why I'm so excited for today's topic. Can we profile evil? I think that goes along with it. The next question, the next two questions come from Gail. Gail S., thank you for your great questions. Question number one, are psychopaths born with these emotional issues? We'll stop there. I'll read her uh, second question after that, if that works out. Yep. Uh, so the answer is probably. There does seem to be a genetic component to psychopathy, there does seem to be some early indications of psychopathy in children. There does seem to be some level of, of heritability, meaning that, that it's passed on genetically. And it's, of course, like everything else in psychology, it's not, there's no, <laughs> there's no causation here. The, 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 the percentage, or we say the variance of heritability that's related to psychopathy is usually going to be no more than like 50%. So that means you can have some of those traits, you can inherit some of those traits for psychopathy. And if you're in the right environment, you may not become a psychopath. So like many things in, in, in social science or in psychology, there's interactions between the environment and between genetics. I want to thank Kim Matheson. She says, thank you for sharing your expertise and helping us all understand and comprehend. Uh, thank you so much. And I also want to thank Holly W for uh, your kind contribution and super sticker. It means so much to us. Gail S. 
her second question that she left. Gail, thank you again for great questions. Um, now afterwards, it's after a crime. And I think they're referring to the person that committed this crime, but mm -hmm. we, you can, you can answer this as a, as a general psychopath or as someone that maybe committed this crime. How are they feeling? Are they watching the news? Do you think he moved out of the area? And I have to say a lot of people are also asking these similar questions in chat right now. So. Yeah. So let me mention that. It, so there's a, there's an instrument called the hair psychopathy checklist. The current version is the, it's called the PCLR, PCLR, meaning there's a revised edition, which came out more recently. All told, there's, there's something like over 14,000 different combinations of psychopaths. So I should make it clear that there, there's no one way to get to a psychopath. There's, if you use the hair, for example, and hair spelled H-A-R-E, I've mentioned him before. His name is Robert Hare. He's done a lot of the research on psychopathy or the early research. And I use that instrument quite often in a lot of my evaluations of criminals because it's sort of the gold standard. But it's important to note that, as I said, I, I, I forget the exact number, but I know that there's well over 14,000 combinations of scoring on the hair that would lead to a diagnosis of psychopath. So that means obviously there's no one type of psychopath. There's many, many, many variants. And so, uh, and I, I don't know why I'm hawking books tonight, but because I have no, we have no interest in this, but this is, I'm going to hold up another book here, Making a Psychopath. It's by Mark Freestone. He has done a lot of work with psychopaths and it's a, Welcome it's a to Dr. Babe's reading list. This is what he does. Yeah. This is what he reads all the time. Uh, it, it's a, it's a great book because it's a very good book on psychopaths because he shows that there are very different kinds of psychopaths and they're all a little different. He has some female psychopaths in his book. He has males. He has some that have committed murder, some that have not committed murder. I mean, it's, it, it shows that there's a, a wide variance in, what a psychopath is and what they look like and what they do, how they think, how they act. So there's really, you know, there's no single answer here, but in general, how would they feel after a crime like this? Uh, you know, my guess is maybe a little bit of pride, maybe nothing, maybe indifference, maybe this is just what a psychopath may do, right? I don't, you know, it, it really depends on, on the circumstances that led up to the crime and maybe some of their motivations, but I don't imagine that they would have a huge amount of, of feeling because psychopaths generally are well known for their lack of feeling. In fact, there's if in the in the hair in the PCLR, there's a trait referred to as callousness, which callousness, callousness, which which is exactly what it is. It's the psychopaths are callous. They don't feel and they don't care. So when they harm other people. They typically don't have any emotions surrounding that. Thank you to our wonderful mod Blue Sky for reminding everyone to show your support. If you like our uh, videos and these lives to hit that like button and then we will know which videos or interviews or anything uh, to bring you and what you like to see more of. Um, Claire is actually asking, could, are these lay person books? Could anyone read these books that you're reading? Uh, the, the first one I showed is not a layperson book. The second one is, can be broadly read. It's so, um, making a psychopath by uh, Freestone is, is 
can be read by anyone. It's, it's pretty, it's basic. It's entertaining. It's, it's a really good book. Okay. And we are, I'm done with the questions uh, that we pulled from last week. I want to again, thank uh, everyone for leaving your questions in the YouTube comments, as well as our Patreon members and Patreon. It is, I think this is going well. We'll continue to answer those questions and study those for the next week. Uh, so thank you so much. And a big thank you to our mods as well. Yes. Uh, crash D it's so true. Thank you. Mods smash that like button. We have the most incredible, uh, loyal, wonderful moderators on this channel, uh, that have become very good friends. We're grateful for all of them. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you. Moderators, <laughs> John. So back to this whole, is there a profile for evil? Uh, which again, that's pretty broad, you know, we can get to what <laughs> yeah, is evil. Right. We, we could sit here and you could write a book on this, yeah. uh, but it's for hidden hour tonight. Where would, where would you like to start tonight with, is there a profile for evil? Well, I, I think we're beginning to hint at that with talk about psychopaths. So I think talking about psychopaths is a good lead in to this question. Um, I, you know, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to discuss the statement that Kaylee's father, Steve, made earlier this week. Okay. Maybe that, maybe that would be a good place to start. Yeah, I have that article pulled up, um, and I'm going to read it from Fox News before anyone jumps on, but, but, but uh, the family reached out after this article was written. It's true. And they stated, we'll talk about that statement after. So we do know that the family, after this article was published, it's still up. The family did come out with a statement about this article. So first let's read the article, then we'll discuss the statement they made. Okay. Um, Fox News, Idaho murders, father of slain victim, says that she had big open wounds, calls police cowards. Clearly a lot has happened since this article, but it's still important to John and uh, to me. The father of slain University of Idaho student Kaylee uh, Gonzalez told Fox News the victims had big open gouges and they were clearly the work of a sadistic male. He called the police cowards for not sharing more with the public. Uh, Gonzalez said he asked the coroner uh, how many times the victims were stabbed. She said, sir, I don't think stabs is the right word. It was like tears. Like this was a strong weapon, not like a stab. She said they were big open gouges. She said it was quick. These were something that you, these weren't something that you're going to be able to call 911. They were not going to slowly bleed out, he said. Mentions the victims, Kaylee, Madison, Zana, and Ethan, says that they were slaughtered in the early morning hours of November 13th in a rental home near campus. Moscow police are working with the FBI and the Idaho State Police have yet to publicly name a suspect or recover the fixed blade knife they believe was used in the horrific attack. Gonsalves said his daughter's injuries definitely did not match uh, her friend's wounds. They may have individually died of the exact same thing, but there were more details. He said they were not even close to matching. The knife slashed open Kaylee's liver and lungs, he said. He went on to, again, call this uh, a sadistic male. Now... Let's read uh, one of the family statements. Kaylee's sister, Olivia, after this was published, did release a statement 
or one of them. There were, there were several, but this is from Olivia Stevenson, Kaylee's sister. Hi, this is Steve's daughter, Kaylee's sister here. I hate to make this post, but unfortunately this reporter got bad information. We are also working with our lawyer to get it removed, but I wanted to let you know from the source, this information was not given to anyone at Fox from our family. So there are both state, you know, we have the article, we have the statement, and it only felt fair to read both, but I, I do want to share this as a journalist. Um, and this is Fox News. This is their news uh, section. This isn't talk show host stuff. This isn't, um, this is uh, Fox's separate news uh, that they share. If that wasn't said and that wasn't true, I don't believe it would still be up. Olivia also mentions they have attorneys working to take the article down. The article remains. I think that their statement did help to squash it. And I think respectfully, there were reasons they wanted to backtrack and not have that go out. And that is fair. Uh, John and I both have a lot of empathy for this family. Um, yeah. So uh, a lot. And you can even talk about that because I know that uh, Steve has actually been criticized recently, John, with some of the ups and downs. He called the police cowards. He's now allegedly had a good conversation and met with the police and he's making some claims about the coroner <clears throat> and some online sleuths and some of the groups I'm in have been a little bit crit more critical of him and how he's handling things. The other victims, parents uh, have not been as vocal. In fact, if we could start there, could you talk about um, that a little bit? Cause that's, what's been going on this. Well, week. let me, let me just say, I want to get into the, the details of that a little bit, but <clears throat> Let me just say I have a lot of empathy for Steve because, you know, the grief he's experiencing must be immense. So whatever his anger is and whatever, you know, whatever he's going through, I, you know, for, for me, it would be nearly impossible to relate. So however he's handling it, I, I, I think it's understandable. If he's, if he's angry and he's acting out a little bit, I mean, it's perfectly, in my mind, that makes perfect sense because he's going through so much grief and he just lost his daughter in a really horrific manner. So I, I, it's hard not to, for me, at least it's hard not for me to empathize with him. And I don't know, I don't know where, what the criticism is of him. Maybe that he's speaking out too much and the police are not happy about that, but I, I can, I feel for the guy. So with that being said, we are going to uh, relate and stand by uh, for this live, this Fox News article and the statements uh, that they claim. It's still up. If if their attorney did try to get it down, clearly um, it stands. So uh, we're going to go there. No criticism to anyone there, but, but we're going to go with that just so you know where we are. We're going to go with this article about a sadistic male. That is what... Steve calls this person. Right. So let's get into the substance of that. I think there's there's a couple of critical issues that Steve raises. Number one is this question of whether this was targeted or random. If, you know, the last couple of weeks that we've been on lives, we've sp I've, I've developed a bit of a profile that assumes it was targeted. Her injuries, her more severe injuries would definitely seem to suggest that this was targeted. However, as, as more time passes and there's no arrest and there's no apparent suspects, it raises larger questions about whether if, it, okay. So if it was targeted, it seems to me that 
the killer would be somewhere in the orbit or the universe of the victim. And my guess is that they've checked out all those leads, interviewed all those potential people, probably gone through all of the victim's contacts, right? They probably, I hope, they probably looked under every stone of people that knew Kaylee or could have known her. And so that's the advantages of assuming that the, the murder was targeted. And the profile that I've talked about the last few weeks assumes that there was potentially a target and it was probably Kaylee. And I speculated that that profile would have revenge or maybe humiliation of the victim as the main motive and it may have been driven by some type of rejection. So that's that's the profile we talked about. But as more time passes and there are fewer suspects identified, I think, you know, it, it, it starts, the profile starts changing a little bit. You start wondering if maybe this is more random. You know, it could be that not enough time has elapsed to evaluate all the evidence and the DNA evidence. And that does take time. So maybe it's that, but let me present a different scenario, which is that perhaps the Kaylee and Maddie who were upstairs on the third floor, perhaps they heard some of the commotion on the second floor. Maybe Maddie woke up slightly and Kaylee woke up slightly. And so the killer goes up to the third floor and he attacks Maddie first she fights back a little bit, but he subdues her. But Kaylee now is pretty much maybe not fully awake, but somewhat awake. And perhaps because she was awake and fighting back that he was especially angered by her reaction. And maybe that's why she has more severe wounds. Right. So that would be a scenario where this could have been a random killer and maybe she wasn't targeted in the way that you would expect. She was targeted because she fought back more. The killer became more enraged during that struggle, and he inflicted more injuries on her. So that's that's a possibility. So I'm going. I want to go down this path of that. Perhaps this was a random crime. Perhaps her injuries were simply because she fought back and not because she knew the murderer or the killer. And the more time that goes by, you know, without any clear suspects, because I have to assume, as I said, I have to assume they've looked under every rock. The more time that passes, the more I think the profile starts to shift a little bit towards this being a random crime with an unknown assailant. And maybe the, the severity of her injuries were due to something other than, than her being known by the killer. And so that, that's why we're talking about evil, because that type of profile starts pushing us in the direction of a random killing, and, or, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Steve's term here, or more of a sadistic killing. So if the motive is not, let's say, revenge, then I, you know, when I talk, it's funny because I talked to Lauren about this literally like two hours before Steve came out with that statement. And I said, you know, this, this could be sadism. This could be some version of sadism. So we'll get into that in a little bit, but in fact, do you want to, there was a, we had a, a listener comment that said something very similar. Do you want to, let's give yeah. a shout out to 
to John, to John Shade. Yeah. Great, this great first a, name, by the way. Sorry about that. I've got a lot going on on my desk. Um, yeah, this is from John Shade. Uh, and uh, it's a commentary not a question, but we kept it. This person, so it's from our uh, last week's hidden hour, live hidden hour on, uh, on the comments and YouTube. This person must be insanely sadistic and filled with unimaginable rage. A huge and most significant component is the pleasure he derives from his rage and his sadism. Degradation and humiliation is all part of the fantasy of the revenge. Psychopathic can, but can blend in really well and seems normal. Just some thoughts, he says. And before you answer that or, or speak to that, uh, we have over 2,000 people in chat. It means so much. What an incredible community we have. I have put the chat on subscriber only because of the amount of questions we're getting in. Okay. So if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe. And uh, if you're new to our channel and if you want to leave a question in chat, uh, please do that. And, and thank you for those that are also liking and giving a thumbs up to this video. Go ahead, doctor, babe. Okay, so so this idea of sadism starts moving us in the direction of what I would describe as evil. Now, when I mention the term evil, <laughs> you know, obviously that's a very loaded term. Um, there's there's the way that social scientists would think about evil, which is trying to assess it objectively in terms of its impact on violence and cruelty. And then there's sort of let's call it the moral domain of evil, which is more of a theological, religious, sociological phenomenon that has a long history in kind of the moral domain. So it's it's going to be, no matter how you deal with this, it's gonna be it's gonna be a challenge to to sort out those different components. In fact, I, let me let me tell a story. I remember this story very well because I don't know why, but I do. But we so when we started our podcast on Daybell which is where it all began back in 2020, summer of 2020. I remember I did an episode on Daybell. And back then we were, we, we weren't getting enough comments that, that we were overwhelmed by them. We could respond to them. So somebody wrote in and said, why don't you just call this what it is? Chad Daybell is evil. End of story. And I wrote back to her and I said, well, I, I think we need to discuss what evil means. It, this probably depends on your definition of evil. And she wrote back, this is why I remember it, because it was, it was somewhat humorous, but she wrote back and she said, look, just stop the psychobabble. Just stop the, you know, the, the nonsense. And just, let's just call this what it is. It's evil. Full stop. End of story. We don't need to discuss anymore. So I, I wrote back to her and I said, well, you know, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one because evil is is a very complicated concept in in psychology and, and many other fields as well. And so let's 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 try to let's try to unpack evil a little bit. I'm going to hold up another book. This is a book by a very well known psychologist, research psychologist. His name is Roy Baumeister. Uh, the title is "Evil: Inside Human Violence and Cruelty." Uh, this book was written in 1997 before a lot of some of the current research on psychopathy existed. 
So I give I give Baumeister a lot of kudos for being a bit of a a, a pathfinder and you know kind of breaking ground here. But let me start by discussing how Baumeister defines evil. So he basically defines evil as inflicting harm on innocent people. Baumeister, though, is because he considers himself a social scientist, Baumeister essentially says that this is a very difficult topic to research because victims and perpetrators have extremely different views of evil. In fact, if you talk to perpetrators and ask them, do you think your actions were evil? Almost all of them will say no. Most all of them will see some logic or rationale in what they do. And they'll explain that. And, and I can tell you this from my work. So I, I sit in front of criminals all the time and many of them deny what they do. And when they do talk about it, many of them blame the victims or they don't see their actions as in some way hurtful or harmful. So Baumeister is very clear that if you're going to talk about evil, you have to acknowledge that victims have very different perceptions of evil than perpetrators. And in fact, according to him, as I just said, many perpetrators don't see their actions as being harmful. And a great example of that would be terrorists, right? That I have very strong opinions about 9-11 and the many innocent people that were murdered on that day. But if you ask Mohammed Atta, who was one of the people who flew a plane into the World Trade Center, he would tell you that he did it out of love. So that's not exactly my version of love, but it speaks to this point that many Americans would point the finger at Atta and say, well, he's evil. That's why he did it, right? But Atta would say, well, you know, Americans are whatever. <laughs> They're Amer Maybe he would see Americans as evil, and he would, he would see himself as doing something for his cause and for freedom, or at least as he perceives it. And as he said in his letter that was found later, that he did this out of love. So it's important to acknowledge that there are different views of evil, and it really depends to some degree on who you ask to. But having said that, Baumeister talks about certain myths surrounding evil. And Baumeister thinks it's important to acknowledge that these these myths create this this perception that there's something that's like pure evil so the listener who wrote to me and said we don't why are we just why, let's not deal with the cycle battle let's just let's just call this evil is obviously kind of in this realm of these myths and so one of the myths that Baumeister talks about is that perpetrators are different and I'm not going to go through all of these, by the way. If you want to, you can you can get the book and kind of read about in detail his his myths around pure evil. But one of them is the belief. So when when we talk in the true crime community, we talk about perpetrators as being monsters. In some ways, this is what we're saying that we can't relate to them. They're not human beings. They're different, and they should be perceived as such. We dehumanize think, them, in other words. We dehumanize, dehumanize them. Right, right. And so they're monsters. Yeah. Right. And and that, by the way, is why that issue of dehumanization dehumanization is why I've never used the word evil in one of my evaluations or psych reports, because you know, first of all, judges have very different perceptions of what evil means and, and lawyers do, and everybody in the courtroom does. So it would be confusing because when you use the term evil, you're not going to get everyone on the same page. 
And almost instantaneously, when you use the word evil to refer to someone, you're dehumanizing. And people are going to go to some version of the person's a monster, right? So, so Baumeister says that that's one of the myths. Another one of the myths is that evil has always existed. So in other words, the idea is that somebody doesn't become bad because of their environment or their family, but they've always been bad. And the reason that's important to Baumeister is that it doesn't acknowledge the situation. It doesn't acknowledge the fact that human beings can be, can break bad. Human beings can, can become bad. And so there's this myth that, you know, this is, this is sort of like, I talked about uh, Anton Chigru last week, Chigur last week from No Country from Old Men. He's like the perfect allegory or personification of evil in some ways because he just comes and goes and kills people at will and randomly. And this is kind of consistent with the, with Baumeister's talking, Baumeister's talking about that, that this, that the people are just purely evil and they've already been, they've always been evil from birth and there's no changing them. He thinks that's a bit of a myth. So those are, those are a couple of the myths around evil. So if we're going to develop a profile about evil, I think it's important to, to try to stick to, try to stick to some of the research and try to be somewhat objective if we can. And let's, so let's talk about, let's talk about Baumeister's root causes of evil. So he does, Baumeister does use the term evil. He thinks it exists. Um, some psychologists don't use that term at all. They think it's a mental construct and it doesn't exist. I would say um, most don't use the term at all. Most Isn't don't. That fair? Yeah. To say. Um, I want to read actually a quote. This is a quote from uh, a, psych a psychoanalyst. He's British. He's, I love his work. His name is Phil Malone, M-O-L-L-O-N. As long as I'm holding up articles. <laughs> the title of this article is, Is Human Nature Intrinsically Abusive? Reflections on the Psychodynamics of Evil. It's by Phil Malone. Here's what Phil Milan says about evil. He says, is the word evil justified in psychological discourse? I believe that it is. When I refer to evil, I have in mind a degree of malevolence, which goes beyond ordinary human anger, selfishness, greed, lust, spite, envy, and egocentricity. There can be something beyond these commonplace human attributes which seems to defy understanding because it seems inherently to express a hatred of life and to involve an idealization of this hostility to life. A quick word from our sponsor, Hidden Gems. It's Lauren and Minnie have been asking where I shop. And so I am finally coming clean with my wardrobe hack. I rent most of the clothes I wear. I love having new clothes each month and I dislike doing laundry. So renting from Armoire is a win-win. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, you build the perfect wardrobe with high quality brands just for you. You take the five minute style quiz and select items from your personalized closet delivered straight to your door in as little as two days. And then when you're ready for new clothes and ready for someone else to do your laundry, you just swap them out for fresh styles. Armoire allows me to always have the perfect outfit, and then I send it back for more. Right now, our gems can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. 
Just visit armoire.style slash hidden true crime. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash hidden true crime to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. So I think that's an that's a very interesting comment. And the basis of that comment, by the way, is that he defines evil as an aversion to life and as something that's beyond comprehension. And that's important, by the way, because a lot of philosophers, there's a whole school of thought in philosophy that sees evil the same way, that sees evil as being incomprehensible and and as, as something that, that's simply beyond human comprehension. And it's interesting, if we go back to like Anton Chigur from No Country from Old Men, I think in a way that's what McCormick McCarthy is after. That Chigurh walks into this gas station in the middle of nowhere in Texas, and he has no purpose for being there, but he walks into the gas station, and he goes up to the counter, and there's the owner of the station clearly is the person there. He asks the owner to, to, to choose heads or tails. He has a coin, and he says... Heads or tails, and the the gas station owner's perplexed. He's like, "Why are you? Why do you ask me to choose heads or tails?" And he, he doesn't debate with him. He just says, "Choose heads or tails." And Shiger starts getting angry because the gas station the, the gas station owner won't go along. And what the gas station owner doesn't know is that if he flips the coin and it comes up heads, he lives. If it comes up tails, he's dead. So Shiger has this philosophy of life, which is essentially that life and death are nothing more than the chance flip of a coin, that he sees life as insignificant and in some ways senseless. And it's, it's really, it's very nihilistic, first of all, but it kind of fits with this idea that Milan is talking about, that this idea of incomprehensible, incomprehensibility in the sense that Anton Chigurh is in many ways incomprehensible. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say that he is—he assaults reason in a way, right? That he's—he kind of—he presents evil as a type of irrationality that can't be explained. That—that that you can't find the motives behind someone who's evil because there are no more motives and there's no purpose. So I, so I think that. One thing that, that's a challenge if we're going to talk about evil in a perpetrator is in many ways, most of us can't understand these people. Right. Exactly. Right? In some ways, they're beyond our comprehension. And most of us who, who live in the human, participate in a human community, we seek some type of justice or we're, we're moral creatures who act in certain ways of, with kindness and love towards other. And so a guy like Anton Chigrew questions all of that. He throws into question the very idea of justice in a way, right? So we, because he doesn't make any sense and because his actions are so extreme and so malicious that we just can't make sense of them. So, so in many ways, you know, I think you have something similar here in Moscow, right? If this is, let's assume this is a random crime committed by a psychopath like Anton Chigur. Okay. And, yeah. Take us there. And it's, it's, and it's really hard to explain the motives, then 
I think it really kind of sets us on edge because most of us live in a world where we want justice and we expect justice, which means yeah. that you find the perpetrators, right? You punish them, you bring them to justice. Now the world feels safe. Now the world makes sense, right? But when you have a perpetrator out there that can strike randomly and just go into a home and kill four people and for no, with just for the sake of violence in and of itself, it really tears, right? It really undermines our sense of, of security and it undermines our sense of the world. And I think that's one of the reasons this crime in some ways is so scary. And it's gotten so much attention and why so many people want justice and so many people are weighing in because there's a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. And and maybe there's, maybe there's a Shigur-type perpetrator out there right and just lurking in the, in the middle of the night and i i sort of think of israel keys when i think of shigar in the sense that many of keys victims were people he didn't know that he approached randomly he would he would sit off the trailheads in parks and he would attract people he would sit in the parking lots of walmarts and targets and abduct people again you know, this really challenges our notion of a safe, secure world. It does. I think you nailed it. You know, I was uh, on the Law and Crime Sidebar podcast this uh, week. You can find that in our community tabs. I, I linked that. And I told them that, that this this case, first off, I thought it, that we'd see an arrest by now. And it has affected my mental health because um, I agree. Um, it's so... I'm going to say it. It's so evil. I'll, I'll call it that. I'm not the psychologist. It's so horrendous. It's beyond human comprehension. And uh, I do want to see justice. And so I, I want to say that I understand that everyone that's wanting that. Thank you so much, Joan. And I want to say thank you to Red Queen, Mystery, and Christy Dunn as well. Um, Haley Manigold, I also want you to know I saw your question because you've, you've posted a couple of times and I love it. We're going to answer it. And we'll also answer our super chats. So thank you to those who sent uh, those super chats. Oh, and look, thank you, Julie Holden, for sharing the Long Crime Podcast. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting week. I also interviewed the neighbor, um, as many of you know. Um, I might be here from that. So um, Enon or Chef Dizzy. Thank you, Dr. Babe. Can I ask yeah. you some questions or do you want to share a little bit more? Now. Yeah, let's let me go a little further with, let me go a little further with Baumeister's research. So what so I've identified some of the myths he talks about. There's more, by the way, that I won't talk about, but let's identify so if we're gonna develop a profile of evil, let's let's talk about what he sees as the four root causes of evil or violence. Because that's important. We'd have to know those if we're gonna develop a profile here, right? So right. the first cause is what he calls uh instrumental violence, which means that violence is used as a means to an end. So this is where you get greed, lust, ambition. This is the first, so the first root cause is violence as a means to an end. And these are the things we see in true crime all the time, right? Greed, money, lust, sex, affairs, jealousy, ambition, power. These, these are things we're all very familiar with. So that, according to Baumeister, would be the first cause of evil. The second 
are what he calls threats to egotism. And that would fit. So that would fit the profile we've developed in the past that we've developed the last few weeks in terms of revenge. Revenge would be if somebody's ego is threatened, a typical response would be revenge or humiliation or right. So that's, that would be another root cause of evil, according to Baumeister. The third root cause of evil, according to him, would be what he calls idealism. So that would be ideology, and you would fit terrorists into this category. The final root cause, and Baumeister sees this as somewhat controversy and much somewhat controversial and much rarer than the other causes, but the the final cause is sadism. And this gets us to the comment that you read, Lauren. Sadism is inflicting harm and engaging in violence because it's pleasurable. So this is this is probably the most interesting one. When I think about if I if I'm going to create a profile here that's that's based on somebody who's evil, this is probably where I'm going to go. That I would I would think of the perpetrator as being sadistic, and this is where I think Steve's statement really nails it. I don't know if Steve intended that, but when you think about it, that if there's no target here and the perpetrator's entering that home, probably knowing that there's some sorority women in there, that somehow he is going to get a certain amount of satisfaction or pleasure from joy from, from the murders. And that's really, that's a scary thought, but, but I think that's in terms of, considering this to be an evil act, that's probably where I would go. And Carol H agrees with you. Just, you know, right there, that pinned comment. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> yes. And let me read. So I want to tie this back to psychopathy. I mean, this is from the Baumeister article. Uh, Baumeister, by the way, he followed up his 1997 book with an article more recently in 2012 called Human Evil. Human evil, the myth of pure evil and the truth causes of violence. So this is chapter 20. This is, by the way, a really excellent summary of a lot of the stuff I'm talking about tonight. But this is from a book called The Social Psychology of Morality. Uh, this Baumeister is in chapter 20. And here's what he says about sadism. I don't know where I put my reading glasses. <laughs> um, it's okay. I can see. Uh, he says that sadism may be linked to psychopathy. Psychopaths lack empathic identification with others and therefore are perhaps less restrained than others by empathic distress. They may get feelings of self-efficacy from the signs of pain and suffering they elicit, and these may increase over time. That's, a, that's an amazing statement, by the way. It is. Wow. Let, let me let me repeat some of that. So it's Thank not you. just the lack of empathy. The the thing that really started the reason I'm reading this is because Baummeister is saying they get feelings of self-efficacy. That means that sadistic acts actually increase their sense of self-esteem. It increases how they feel about themselves as capable human beings in the world. Self-efficacy is something we normally attribute to doing things well. So for example, if you're a good student and you do well on tests or whatever it is, or maybe you're an athlete and you excel at tennis or something, you develop self-efficacy by, by, 
by mastering those things and becoming better at them and improving over time. He's saying that psychopaths develop feelings of self-efficacy from the signs of pain and suffering they elicit. That's incredible. So when you think about that, and, and I don't think it's always true, but when you think about that, I think it's an amazing conception of, of evil in some ways. Thank you. If it was targeted, I mean, can't it be both too? That's a question I have. That well, was a question the, I so wanted I to think ask. The, I think one of, the, one of my goals tonight is to contrast a profile that's based on, so my previous profiles are based on the research on mass murderers and school shooters and that sort of thing. And most of those are based on the killer essentially being rejected and trying to repair a damaged sense of self through violence. And, and the goal there is some type of revenge or some type of reparative process. But this, this profile. So let's, so again, let's, let's say we're moving away from targeted to something more random and, and we do that, that would happen over time. So the less, the, the fewer suspects that are identified over time and the more random this appears, the more you would move in the direction of something like sadism, which is consistent with, as we just talked about, is consistent, is more consistent with something like evil. So, so I, I think I'm, I'm just trying to point out the contrast that, that I don't, it would, that I think sadism is in, in some ways a category unto itself. I think that, Yes, there could be something sadistic about revenge, but I think it's a little different in the sense that like with Baumeister, for example, he identifies egotism or threatened egotism or revenge as its own category. And he sees sadism as, as separate. There could be some overlap, but I, I think if you were to profile in this area, you'd probably see sadism as its own category. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for answering my question. It's own category. Someone mentioned I also didn't um, kill the dog. I don't know what that means or doesn't mean, but clearly, again, the dog wasn't a target nor a threat of whatever this person's motive was. You know, um, Haley Manigold actually asked a really good question, and then we have some super chats as well. So Haley asks, hidden true crime. How, and, and by hidden true crime, she's referring to you. This is a question for you. Okay. Okay. So Dr. John, how do you convey the feeling you get when you yourself think someone is beyond deviant while you're writing a report? Can I say something while you think about that? You think about that. Um, I know when John goes to the prisons to um, evaluate criminals, I, I'm never privy to everything, but I know when he's going and when he comes back, this is something I've noticed about him. He, when you first arrive home, you have a lot more empathy. I feel like you're like, ah, you know, you're really, you're really, I can tell you are really with this person. You come back with a lot of empathy for the person you were just evaluating for hours. Mm -hmm. And then I've noticed that as you write the report, you get angrier as you're writing the report, then I feel like your empathy sort of diminishes a little bit and comes your anger. So yeah. that's why Haley's question caught my attention is because I've literally seen this process happen. And so I do want to know what, what do you, um, again, the question 
exactly is, how do you convey the feeling you get when you yourself think someone is beyond deviant while you're writing a report? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think my simple answer is I try to be as objective as possible in the sense that I'm relying on S data and I'm relying on records, criminal records, and I'm relying on interviews with other people that know the perpetrator. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of safeguards here that keep me from getting too invested. Although of course I'm human, so it's tough. It's tough. You know, Lauren's point, I, I think Lauren's right in the sense that when I'm, when I'm with someone, when I'm with an offender, a lot of times I hear a horrendous story. You know, a lot of times there's significant childhood trauma and significant childhood abuse. And that's important in terms of my understanding of perpetrator. So I, I do hear that and I do feel a lot of empathy. And I think when I get back and I'm a little more detached from that story and start looking at what happened and the crime, of course, when I go in, I know the crime, obviously, and most of the crimes are horrendous. But I think when I start getting some distance from the story, from the horrible childhood stories I often hear, then I feel less empathy. So it is a process. It is a process in the sense that I'm trying to be empathic and objective when I'm with an offender, but because I want to understand them, but I'm probably creating a little more distance when I have all the information laid out on my desk and I'm a little bit detached from it. I will say this though, there's been a couple of times when maybe a handful of times over the years when I've been in a room with someone that's done some horrendous things and it's really hard to muster empathy. You know, there, I don't know how to describe this, but I, I, you know, I guess I'd hesitate to use the term evil, but there's times when I've been in a room with people where I just feel a, just a sense of dread and just, you know, it, I, it's like every part of my being is screaming to leave the room because I, I don't know if I, I wouldn't call it fear. I would call it uneasiness and dread and anxiety. And I, it's hard to describe, but I mean, of course, my job is to maintain objectivity and to, you know, have a facade of being calm, but that's not really how I feel in the room. So I'm, there's been a handful of times where, and the crimes are so horrendous that, you know, I've, I've gone in probably a little biased by that, even though I don't want to, to be biased, but there's just this, I don't, the only, the best term I think I can use is, is dread that, it, you know, every part of my being is screaming to get out of that room, even though I know there's a guard nearby and I have a panic button and all that stuff. But it's, it's, I know there, there's just, I can't connect to those human beings and I can't, there's nothing there and it's, it's frightening. And so, so I hope that answers the question. I think it does. Thank you. And Haley says, thank you. She, she wanted to do this line of work once and she's fascinated. Uh, but there again, so many incredible questions coming through. We're going to start with the super chats. We're going to give those priority. And so I want to go back to Christy Dunn. Christy Dunn asked, can psychopaths feel fear? Uh, love your channel. Thank you, Christy, for this question. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Most don't. 
Most don't. In fact, I mentioned the research on on the triarchic model of psychopathy, which is fearlessness is one of the main components. So many don't feel fear, and that's you know there, there's 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 something we call distress emotions, which is fear and sadness. And distress emotions usually allow us to connect to other human beings. So when somebody's afraid, typically we want to comfort them. And when somebody's feeling sad, it's an, I think it's a normal human response to comfort them. But psychopaths don't feel that. So psychopaths really don't have the ability to comfort other human beings when they're in distress. And that that makes them different, right? That makes them kind of stand outside of the normal human community in a way. As you pointed out last week, their heart rate goes down. Yeah, um, it can. Oftentimes in, an, in a horrendous act. Yeah, not all the time. But yeah, there is there is that component. Yeah, that that many times psychopaths in fight or flight situations and stressful situations, their heartbeats will actually decrease, which is not a normal response to, to a high stress situation. Uh, another super chat question. Tony Crump, by the way, thank you for your donation. We're so uh, grateful for that. Uh, Miss, uh, Miss Sterry asks, Dr. John, if Ethan had been the target would it change the way you see the killer? I I think so. Yes. I, I think it would too. Right. I, I think you. Because I've seen yeah. you. I've seen you process this at our dinner table when we talk, and why you think targets are certain, and why you why you think this. Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to reconceptualize thing. what the motive would be. I I don't think it would be revenge. It could be. You know, maybe Ethan challenged the person, or maybe you know, it could be some threat to the person's ego. It might stay with that, but certainly if, if you move in the direction of a profile that's based on sadism, it, it would, it would change it a lot. I don't know because there's, it's, it's possible that a profile that sees the killer as being sadistic is also, it might have a sexual component in the sense that a lot of times Many murders, even though they don't involve sexual assault, many murders, you know, many murderers have an association between sexual impulses and aggression or dominance. And so that's an interesting, any crime, any murder that involves over a, a large amount of aggression or a large amount of dominance, which is many murders, may have that association with sexual impulses. So... If it's Ethan and, you know, it might, it might change it a little bit in terms of assuming that the, the murderer was attracted to the sorority women and not Ethan, then it might change it a little bit. I wish you could see some of these questions so you could pick which ones to uh, answer. There's again, so many good ones. Um, but uh, <laughs> Claire asks this and I actually find it, relevant because I'm going to ask, um, our, uh, our listeners a question in return to this, but Claire asks, do you think the postings of the house layout? And, um, so to clarify, um, we did share a video of the house layout on our channel last night, uh, for the insomnia crew. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's a three and a half minute video where we go through it slowly to kind of show it. And we're not the only ones to have posted our version of the layout. We thought ours was good enough to share. 
but we certainly weren't the first to to post a layout. Uh, Kara, thank you so much. And then I also want to thank, by the way, Jean Marie. Sorry, thank you so much for your donation. Uh, Jean Marie has been a loyal gem with us uh, since the beginning. Thank you so much, Jean. Um, so Claire's question, going back to the layout of the house, do you think the postings of the house layout that multiple YouTubers have posted, hidden true crime included, do you think it's helping the killer to relive the killing experience? And I want you to know, by the way, we learned today that uh, a Google Earth now, it is the, the crime scene's now blurred on Google Earth. But, oh, okay. But not, yeah, but we still have these inside maps. Uh, I don't, I don't think that the layout would matter much. I think the killer is the killer had fantasies of the, these murders beforehand. And because the, the killer was obviously emotionally invested in the murders and was there and has vivid, vivid recollections of the murders. I think that's sufficient for the killer. I don't think the killer needs to know the layout or I don't think the, the layout would stimulate any recollections. I think the killer has those already and they're prominent and the killer probably has many, many fantasies or recollections of, of the murders with or without the layout of the house being public. Thank you. I am communicating with a news nation producer who might want to have uh, who's asking if I could possibly be on tonight. So, uh, this is another reason, again, we've been doing our lives early. I told her yes, by the way, John. Okay. So, so that means we're going to have to. We're going to have to conclude shortly, conclude. but okay. but I am. I, I did what I just asked her is if she wants to ask our viewers or listeners anything or their opinions. So um, we'll see what she says. Uh, with that being said, uh, yeah, usually I'm on Ashley Banfield's show uh, when um, they ask. So everyone can tune into News Nation tonight. Kara, thank you so much for your donation and super chat. Um, does this person fear being caught? We refer to fear. That's a great question, Kara. Thank you. We refer to fear. I, I don't think they fear being caught. I think they don't want to be caught, but I, I don't think they fear it. It's see, and this is where we start to dehumanize them and call them monsters because it's just easier. It's so hard for me to comprehend not having fear or not having emotion. Um, it's just a hard thing for me to understand because I'm such an emotional person. So they don't want to get caught, but they don't fear getting caught. Right. And in some cases, there may be, you know, like with the Zodiac killer, the Zodiac is an outlier and highly unusual. But in, like the, with the Zodiac killer, there was actually some taunting going on with the police and some one-upsmanship. So that's a case where you have a psychopath who has no fear and, in fact, would go so far and doesn't think he's going to get caught. He actually wasn't caught. So, but has no fear and has no problem taunting police about how smart he is and how great his ciphers are and all that kind of stuff. And let me just pull up a couple of more questions that we shared. We've had some interesting questions and even interesting comments. Someone um, actually discussed meeting Israel keys and uh, no warning bells went off and that they yeah. knew that. Right. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. It, right. It really is. Yep. Here it is. Raw Olympia says met keys at a party. He never came up on my radar. Yeah. And then they say, it just makes me feel so lame. I just had no sense of danger around him. I mean, how many datelines do we need to watch with the neighbor saying, 
Oh, just seemed like a regular guy. I would have never thought they would do that. Same thing happened when we covered the Chad Daybell case, right? Um, uh, yeah. when, we covered it from the very beginning when the children were missing and no one could find them. And uh, Chad Daybell's neighbors were coming out. I know. I believe Chad. He wouldn't do anything. The news is wrong over and over and over again. And yet, as human beings, we can all see that someone else shouldn't have trusted their neighbor. But then when we're faced with it and it's us, we're like, nope, they would have never done it not them. We trust our own intuition more than we trust others. Well, now I'm, I'm going on a soapbox and maybe I'll ask you a question. What's that about? Why can we never see what's in front of us, whether it's Israel Keys or Chad Daybell or this person, you know, this killer, we don't know who they are. Because they're playing a role. They're, they're, they're hiding behind a facade. They're not showing you who they really are. Just like we, you know, we don't know our neighbors that well. When we, when we talk to our neighbors, we're kind of in the neighbor role. They don't really know what we do. They don't know why we do it. Maybe we don't know why we do it. But um, but I think the, the short answer is that most people aren't going to show you who they really are unless you are able to dig deep or you're, you have the right context. So many of us will either play the role that we're assigned at that moment or we'll hide behind a facade. And so I think, you know, with Dahmer, that was true too. Then one of the neighbors said, oh, he was the nice, he was the sweetest, kindest guy. And Ted Bundy, everyone. Ted Bundy, gentlemen. Um, Red Queen said something interesting and then and then we'll conclude. They gave a super chat a while back. It wasn't okay. a question. They actually offered to answer some questions, but but I just want to share what they said. They said that they are in the top 99th percentile of the psychopathy scale but they do not come close to the diagnostic criteria of ASPD, meaning antisocial personality disorder. Do you know um, what that's about? <laughs> they said they, they could perhaps answer some of these questions. And, and of course that time has passed, but I thought that was so interesting. I wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, there's a difference. So usually, so yeah. So antisocial personality is, is a diagnosis in the, the DSM five, the diagnostic and statistical manual that's often used to assign diagnoses, whereas psychopaths or psychopathy is not a diagnosis. So there's definitely overlap. Usually psychopaths would be a small subset of antisocial personality disorder. So it would be a little unusual to be a psychopath and not antisocial personality disorder, but it's it's an interesting, I think we would need to know more details to figure that out, but that's a, that's a very interesting situation. Yeah. All right, we are going to conclude. <coughs> Barley Ops, my announcement, uh, we just are sharing clues. I am not pregnant. Let's get that rumor out of the way because a few people are asking me, and John would not be smiling right now if that were true. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I am not. And so the, as far as the announcement goes, we've been teasing an announcement. It has to do with books. Uh, we will be, it does not have anything to do with NFTs. It's something new. We're going to add to our podcast, to our YouTube channel, to our Patreon. Um, we're also going to have memberships very soon here on YouTube. We've been asked, people have been asking and we've been listening. So, so we will share more soon. I'm not quite going to tell you what that is yet, but that those are some hints for you. News Nation is asking our listeners a question. Ashley Banfield wants to know something. So hit this in chat or put it in comments, please. 
Um, and I'll be going on News Nation tonight. And you can see this. So question is, what do you think the escape route was for the killer? This is for all of our hidden gems here tonight. Ashley Banfield, News Nation wants to know. Um, do you think that they escaped in the front or through the front or back door or somewhere else? Uh, let us know in chat or in comments. Um, and thank you. And News Nation producer says thank you. And Ashley Banfield says thank you. With that being said, we'll wait. There's a bit of a lull. Dr. John, is there anything else you want to share before we go? Oh, well, I, I ask you that. And then I say, don't wait. Don't talk yet. One more thing. There were so many good questions tonight. Like always, please, uh, put your questions into comment. It's hard for us sometimes to go back and read the chat all over again, but put those questions you asked. They were so great in the comments. John and I are uh, making it a tradition every week to sit down and grab a hot drink and read through all these comments together. We love your comments. We love your questions. So please do that. And, uh, we, we hope to get to more of them next week. Remember that we always go live on Friday nights. Uh, please watch News Nation tonight. We'll be there. Thank you so much for all of your support. Thank you for the answers to the questions you're asking. <coughs> um, with that being said, okay, now I'm ready. Dr. John, do you have any last words? I do. Yeah. I, I just want to talk quickly about something, some research be, being done that furthers the idea of psychopaths or psychopathy. There's something that psychologists now call the dark triad, and there's something psychologists call the dark tetrad. And basically, so if we're trying to pin down this idea of evil, I think it's important to mention this research. A lot of this research was done after Baumeister wrote his book, by the way. So the dark triad is psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. Machiavellianism is essentially using people as a means to an end or objectifying people. So the dark triad is important because it's, it's, it's research that's essentially saying that you if you really want to figure out why people do the most evil things, you kind of have to go beyond psychopathy even. You have to get into other elements. The dark tetrad, which adds to the dark triad, it adds the element of sadism. So that's obviously what we've been talking about tonight. But I did want to mention some research by uh, Scott Barry Kaufman, David Yadin, Elizabeth Hyde, and Eli Sukiyama. They've done some research on the dark triad, and they've also done research on actually what they call the light triad. So there's actually sort of a positive version of that. But they developed a profile based on their research and, and statistical analysis of a lot of different um, demographic groups, they developed a profile on the dark triad. And I'm going to read that since our, since we're, we're trying to profile evil tonight, the dark triad would be considered certainly would be considered within that realm of someone we might call evil or the dark tetrad. They did, I guess they didn't look at that. So they didn't look at sadism, but I'm just going to read their research because they have a profile actually of people that fit the dark triad. And they say that the dark triad was positively correlated with being younger, being male, being motivated by power, 
instrumental sex, meaning sex for their own gratification that had nothing to do with intimacy, achievement and affiliation, but not intimacy, having self-enhancement values, immature defense styles, conspicuous consumption, selfishness, and viewing their creative work and religious immortality as routes to death transcendence. So there you go. That's that's a profile of someone who meets the criteria for the dark triad. The question is, if we're going to develop a profile of someone who's evil, how many of these elements would fit the murderer in Moscow and would sadism be a part of it, right? So if we're trying to profile evil, I think this starts moving us in that direction or at least might help. Liz Johnson, thank you so much for your donation. John just asked a loaded question that's great. I don't know if we have time for that. If not, do you want to answer it next time or do you have anything you want to say? He's asking if you interviewed the Idaho offender, what would you ask? <laughs> the, the, the offender that hasn't been caught, right? Yeah. He says it might be loaded. I would say this is definitely yeah. a loaded question. What would I ask? I, it all depends on, it all depends on their history. You know, so the, I've talked about the difference between a suspect based profile and a psychological profile. So a psychological profile is, is basically my job, which is to understand someone who's known. So when I, when I develop a profile, it's with a known offender and I have all their history and I do clinical interviews and I can talk to all the people that know the person and I can do testing, but a suspect based profile, which is what we're trying to do here is an unknown suspect. So in the, in the profiling world, those are called unsubs. And for those who have watched Mindhunter, you know, it's the, the term is unsub. It would be, my questions would be very different. Uh, so if, if I know who it is, I would, you know, generally speaking, I'm going to approach an interview with some fairly standard questions, but it would really depend on the crime and it would really depend on the circumstances and what I was looking for, the hypotheses I would develop. Okay. So most of my questions are in forensic work. There's always kind of three prongs. There's, you want to use multiple sources. You want to use multiple methods, which means multiple types of tests, multiple interviews, and you want to develop multiple hypotheses. So my hypotheses really drive my evaluation. So it really depends on, really depends on the, the criminal and what they've done and how bad it is and what my hypotheses are about what's happened. How's that for skirting the question? That's great. <laughs> John, thank you. Liz, thank you. Tiffany, thank you. We are going to take off. I'm supposed to be logged in right now to Zoom. Everyone, tune in to News Nation. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Thank thanks, guys. Take care. Uh -huh. We'll see you. Okay, bye. bye.